it was to be a study in Ecclesiastes, and I know that last week we didn't even get to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes but that's uh, not at all a bad thing because we're talking about a lot of uh, good theology in our study about the uh, character, uh, uh, attributes of God in the lives of his people. And so we can never go wrong by continuing in those things. Like I said last week, it's a lifelong study to just study the character and the attributes of God. So vital for the believer to understand who this God is that we come and worship and serve and who we have to do with. So we will not uh, go wrong by staying in that the rest of our days. Uh, I want to begin, though. It's amazing uh, how God is good, and he's a God of uh, great order. And this morning as I was uh, preparing a little bit, I was just thinking about one of the hymns that we uh, actually sang this morning. And so uh, I brought the hymn book because I want to just read. We sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the great hymn by uh, Martin Luther. And I think of all the great theology that's in that. And when we think about theology, theology is simply... The study of God, isn't it? So, you know, that that's what we're to be about, is who who is this God that we come to worship, and again, as I said, to serve and devote our lives to. I just want us to listen to the words to this, because it's going to it's gonna fit in with some of the things that we're going to be looking at and reading this morning. It says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. He's our helper. He's uh, our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. I think of, uh, I've read uh, several books by John MacArthur. A lot of y'all are familiar with him. Uh, Good books that are out by him. And he... uh, he made a comment one time. I talked a little bit last week about how it's important to discern between hearing truth and hearing uh, falsehood or heresy. And we have a lot of that going on out there amongst the airwaves and in some of these uh, televangelists and things that we hear. MacArthur made the statement one time that we think of uh, these guys, are uh, a lot of them are talking about Satan and having all this uh, perfect control over him. They... they, uh, they uh, Tell him what to do, uh, as, as Luther is saying here, on earth is not his equal. MacArthur says that uh, here these guys are telling us you can tell Satan to do this or not do that or you have no power to do this or do that. And he says most of them don't even have control of their own children. So we want that, that's a good true statement because he's not, he's not who we're to be in that way concerned about. Um, our chief concern is, as I've said earlier, and we continue to say, is who is God? Who is God in all these situations? And who is he in power and control of all in whom he has created? He is the ultimate authority, and he is the ultimate power over all. He created everything, and he created everything by himself, and he also created everything for himself. So everything that we see and everything that we're, we experience, God has created those things for himself. He will be ultimately glorified but by all that he has created and all that is going on in the world. So that's something to uh, continue to think about. Um, he, he goes on to say, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? So if we, we take those things as, as Satan or most most anything in our lives and try to control it and try to do it with our own strength, as Martin Luther is saying there, it would be losing. Our striving is losing. God, Christ is our victor over all those things. Because it goes on, he goes on to say, we're not the righteous man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Speaking of Christ, does ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. So all victory belongs to him. And through, though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, 
we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Remember we talked about last week, God's will is always decisive. Our will is dependent upon what God chooses to do. And as believers, as we understand and begin to study who God is, we can trust that that's always going to be the right thing. God's will is the best for our lives. He says, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. God has ordained from all of eternity that there is a doom for the evil one. It is coming. He even knows it's coming. Uh, I say this a lot, that the devil and demons have a, have a much greater grasp most of the time of God's sovereignty and his purpose for them than we do. Uh, you remember... You as the demons were taken out of, of uh, lead, the uh, demonic man was coming down the road and saw Jesus, and the demons cried out, thinking that he had come to take them before their time. Have you come to destroy us before our time? So they themselves know that, know that there is a time, that their end is sure, as Luther is saying here says, his rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. In the last verse, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us aideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever and ever. So we see all the great theology in that in that song, in that hymn, and that's what we see in all the hymns that we sing. And notice that they're always, as I say, they're pointing us to who God is. And even when we hear Dan or whoever's preaching, the first question that we ought to ask ourselves as he's going through the scriptures, who is, what is this passage or this scripture telling us about who God is? See, our views of God... We want, to, we want to have higher and higher as we learn more and more about him. Again, again uh, last week as we talked about some things, I talked about how when, when I was out of work for some uh, two or three months, I don't remember exactly how long, and Pam and I would get up in the mornings and we would just get into the Psalms. We would just encourage ourselves in the Psalms. It was such a refreshing time. It's one of those, it's one of those things where you're, you're needing... You're needing a job real bad to provide for your family, and at the same time, you're really not wanting it to come because you're, you're, so, you're so getting refreshed by the things of God. And God, in his graciousness, did that for us. But one of the ones that I remember so clearly, turning your Bibles to Psalm 46. And like I said, this was during a time as far as in, in uh, ourselves, and our frailness and weakness, it was a, it was a tough time not knowing uh, what was coming from day to day. But what we do, we just in those times we remind ourselves as believers of who God, who is God to me in this, in this situation, whether good or whether bad seemingly. Okay, look at Psalm, we got it, Psalm 46, look at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. Remember what we just read from the hymn by Martin Luther. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And one of the things I thought about as I just read that verse, I thought about how many times uh, sometimes we pray for God to be something for us. Uh, God, give, be, be my strength today. Uh, be my help today. And, uh, you know, according really to Scripture, we don't, as believers... You don't have to pray for him to be those. He is that. That is who he is. And that's the things we need to encourage our, our souls with and our spirit to understand that he already is that. He is our refuge. And he is our strength in time of trouble. Now, now the right prayer is to be thanking him for being who he is. That's how we should start out our prayers. Our prayers should all, always start with reminding us of who God is. That's a great way to start a prayer. And then look at verse 2. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, 
Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. And then you see that word Selah, that's always telling us to pause for a minute and think about what we just read. And we think about these, these uh, physical, these, these disasters that take place. God is in control of those. He's in the midst of those as well. And so who is he for his people in the midst of that? And we can take, we can take your uh, individual situations as being those things that well up in the mountains and the, the, the problems and the valleys that we hit. God is telling us who he is in that. He is our help. He is our refuge. Though they quake, though they swell with pride. There's a river whose streams he makes glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations make an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. We don't have to pray for God to be with us. God is with us. Because who is he? He is Emmanuel, right? God is with us. We don't have to worry about it if that's not happening, regardless of our situation. The God of Jacob, again, he is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord. We see how it's explaining all these things that look like they would be disastrous things. Uh, the Bible calls them the works of God. God is the one working those things. Come behold the works of God who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. And then look what he says here. To calm our hearts in all of these as his people cease striving and know that I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Again, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So you can see the, the great encouragement that Pam and I found in those words there in going through um, somewhat of a dark time in our lives. And we all have those places. You're, e you're, either, you're either in one right now, you've, you've just passed out of one, or you got one coming. Because they're coming. Because guess what? They're necessary. Those things are necessary for our sanctification. It's the loving kindness and it's the mercy of God that he will not allow his people to be focused on those things that will bring them no true joy and happiness. And so he strips things from us. He gives us things. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away, as Job says. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those are all good things. It's, it's always good when God removes something from us that is hindering our walk with him. It's a merciful discipline. Remember the three things that uh, we talked about last week. I said how you can, you can kind of just real simply uh, explain all of this from three things that uh, I told you I read out of one of uh, Jerry Bridges' books, Trusting God When Life Hurts. He says, here's what we can know about God at all times in our lives as his people. That number one, he is completely sovereign. Number two, he's infinite in wisdom. So he's too wise to make an error. He's not going to make a mistake in how he's dealing with us. It's going to be good and right and holy. And then the third one, he's perfect in love. So things that might cause us sometimes in our weakness to question his love, that's not who he is. The Bible says he's perfect in love for his people. It's an eternal love that he has for us so he's doing these things in our lives in perfect wisdom in infinite wisdom and in perfect love and completely sovereign over all that that he's uh, dealing with that's going on in our lives so those are that's great comfort for us as believers i wanted to read uh, one verse that we left off last week as we were finishing up you know we were talking about his sovereignty we we're talking about his providence uh, one of the greatest, we, we remember the story of Job. We know what Job went through. The great uh, suffering uh, servant suffered probably second to Christ as much as anybody that we could, we could think of in the scriptures. If you turn to Job chapter 23, 
Let's look at that a minute before we get any deeper. Job chapter 23, verses 8 through 14. Would someone read that for us? 8 through 14. Thank you, sir. Yes, that's it. Thank you, Matt. Notice we think about the great suffering that Job was going through here, and so what he desires to do, he just wants to meet with God, and he wants to hash these things out. He's trying to figure out, as we've been talking about, he's trying to make sense of providence. He's trying to make sense of what God is doing, and that's what we're going to see was the same dilemma that Solomon was in. He's trying to make sense of all these things. How can these things be? Instead of just having a sold-out reliance and trust that God was working something in his life that, as we said, as we can always go back to Romans 8.28, all things working together for good to those who love God. He knew he loved God. He knew that he was a servant of God. God knew it. How did God first describe Job in, in the very first verse? He's an upright man. He loves me, and he shuns evil. So what was God going to do? I mean, it looks like then he just crushes Job is just crushed. But you know what ultimately happened? Job got a glimpse of God that few ever, ever get. He got to see God as close as anyone has ever seen him, closer than just about everybody. And God showed himself strong. So, Because when God finally did meet with him, you know what Job's response was? I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. So here was a guy who suffered more than any we would ever imagine, and he's calling these things wonderful because it gave him a glimpse and a knowledge of God that he would have never had otherwise. And uh, what, a, what a beautiful picture. But think of these verses. He says, I'm looking for him. I'm going forward. I can't find him. When he acts, remember last week I talked about God is always an acting God. He doesn't react to anything. He just acts. He doesn't have to react to anything because he already knows what he's going to do. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns to the right and I cannot see him. But listen how the servant of God comes to the right conclusion. Even in the midst of his distress, what does he do to find comfort? He goes back to what I've been saying is and reminds himself of who God is. Right here. He knows the way that I take. See, sometimes that's all we need to know, no matter what we're going through. We need to know that God knows the way that I take. He knows the way that I'm going. He knows the result that's going to come from this way that I'm going, and it's going to be the right way, and it's going to be the right result. He knows the way that I take, and when, when he has tried me, look what he says, I shall come forth as gold. So we talk a lot about that process of sanctification. Sometimes it's a painful process for us, but look what it's doing. It's refining. As it talk, we talk, we hear, read about it in Peter. It's turning us to gold. It's refining those things that need to be refined. It's bringing things out that need to be brought out. My foot, and then here's what Job, look at Job's responsibility and what he says that he has done. This ought to be as we do, regardless of our situation. My foot is held fast to his step, path, I have kept his way, and I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Not many of us, myself as well concluded, can say that that's the case. And, but that's where we want to be. We want to get to that place where we treasure the words of God even more than our necessary food. And then look what he begins to do. He begins to as I'm saying, describe who God is. Here's his character. He's unique. 
and no one can turn him. There's no one that can change God's plan or change his mind about what he's going to do. It's already been done in eternity. Remember that God is always the first cause of everything that comes to pass. That's what the reformers of long ago would put, and right, rightly so. Consider him as the first cause of everything that happens. He's unique. No one can turn him in whatever his soul desires. That's what he does. See, God is the only one that can say that. We can't say that. Whatever our soul desires, that's what we're going to do. doesn't happen very, very often, if at all. And then look at 11, for he performs what has already been appointed for me. So God, ha God is performing those things in our lives as believers that he's already appointed for us. We don't have to always understand them. Yeah, they can, they can make us perplexed at times, but again, what does God's word say about them? It says this, that he's the God who performs all things for me. Uh, Psalm 57, uh, 2, uh, the psalmist writes that. There's, a, there's an old uh, uh, minister back in the 1600s, way back there, called John Flavel. And he wrote nearly 300 pages of a book called The Mystery of Providence, and it was just taken from that one verse. That's absolutely astounding to me. It just shows the, it just shows the goodness and grace of God, how he's taken certain individuals and given them that kind of wisdom and, and that kind of insight into God's word that they can take one verse and write 300 pages. I will praise the Most High God, some of your translations will say, in Psalm 57, 2, who performs everything for me. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing to, to try to comprehend. But we don't have to comprehend. It's true. You know, it's, it's like I always say, we don't have to understand. We just know that it's true. This is, this is who God says he is. This is what he does for us. And then he says, many such decrees are with him. So there's many, many plans. There's many, many things that he's going to do with us. So that's a, I just wanted to read those things because those are so vital for us to remind ourselves in times of distress, trouble, dark, dark times, times when we can't explain anything. You know, the bottom line is we don't, we don't have to try to explain everything. And that's where we see Job got into some trouble trying to do that. Uh, Solomon, as we're going to be talking about, did the same thing, trying to, here was the wisest, God gave him wisdom like he'd given no other man, but he could not explain God's workings as hard as he tried. But what he could do, God gave us a book there, and we don't, we don't think about Ecclesiastes very often, do we? I mean, uh, we, don't, we don't consider that much, but it's such a perfect picture of, of what it is to seek happiness apart from God. That's what Solomon did. It's a futile thing because... God made us to find our joy and happiness in him alone. So it doesn't matter how much we attain or what we get, it ain't going to happen. You know, the unbeliever uh, may find some temporary happiness in things. We, we think of uh, Hollywood and we think of uh, all the sporting, uh, the, the people that are in sports. They may, they may find some temporary happiness, but it's not eternal happiness. It's not happiness that really matters, and even then, look how often we see total disaster in their lives. Suicides, never, never happy, always wanting more, because God did not design us that way, to find it in anything other than himself. And that's what Solomon did for some 25 or 30 years, sought to find happiness apart from God. And you know what God did? He gave him the fullest cup of it. We think how we, how we work with those five senses. Solomon had all those excelled to the highest that you could go. And we'll read that in a minute. See where he had it all, and it still proved worthless to him. And praise the Lord for that, to see that he was a, he was a son of the covenant of grace because God wouldn't let him stay in that. He would not let him find relief in that. And he came, to, he came to his senses towards the end of the book. But he's given us, as an older man now, he's given us all his life's experience, how none of it worked. He gives the right appraisal of the world by saying it's vanity. 
37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says all is vanity because he could not find relief in it. Um, so we think, if we think of Ecclesiastes, here's what I think the big idea is, and I said it basically a while ago. It shows us the total futility of seeking true happiness apart from God. And we have Solomon trying to explain everything that's happened, and he did it experimentally. He experienced it, and he gave it to us in this little book, which is so uh, so vital and so necessary for us to remind ourselves of. So let's go ahead and turn. Let's turn now to Ecclesiastes. We're going to read some some from there. We're going to see a good picture of what we're talking about. I got in there. If you turn on the back of your page, where it see it says that uh, authorship and definition of Ecclesiastes. There seems to be some that would that would uh, talk about maybe Solomon not being the author of Ecclesiastes. I I, I mean I'm I'm just not too smart to try to figure that out because it looks real clear to me that he would have to be. If we read uh, chapter one and verse one, someone go ahead and get that while we're looking. Chapter one, verse one of Ecclesiastes. What does it say? That looks pretty much like it points to Solomon, doesn't it? And he's called the preacher. Uh, you see that B, it says Ecclesiastes means preacher. It comes from the, from the word ecclesia, meaning assembly or congregation. So here is what God has put in his book. See, all these things are for us. Everything that is written is for us and for every generation. So we see a book that's written here. We got this man giving us a life experience of what actually happened to him and telling us not to go that way. Don't look for those things to bring you relief. Again, all vanity. Look at chapter, if we look at chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. If someone will just maybe get the first five, chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, we'll read first. Okay, thank you, sir. I said to myself, Come, and I'll detest you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. Behold, this grief is before me. I said of laughter, It is vanity, and pleasure, what does it mean? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my life. With wine, while my mind recalled the writings of wise men, and how to take hold of folly, so I could see what good there is. my work, I built houses for myself, and enjoyed the convenience of myself. I made gardens, worked for myself, and I planted trees for the name of God. Thank you, sir. Okay, we see what I was saying earlier. He had the full cup of all these things. I mean, he would, Solomon would make Donald Trump look like a pauper for what he had. He even had other kings and princesses bringing him their gems. As we'll read, we'll read later. But so he's trying to say, he's trying to figure out how all this can bring him joy and happiness. If this is, if this is, if my cup is full, but yet it still seems empty. Because see how his words come to us. I'm, tr- I'm, I'm doing everything I can. He says to enjoy myself with pleasure, and he could have all this at the snap of a finger. It was all right there for him. If he, if he had somebody come that would make him laugh, bring him laughter, he says, what does it accomplish? And he's given us the how short this life is if you had all of that. kind of goes within the New Testament as we see what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul. Because such a short lifespan we all have. If you live to be a hundred, it's short. And so he said of laughter, it's madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? And look what he says he did. He explored with his mind. Here's, the, here's this man of great wisdom that God gave him. But what, what has happened to Solomon 
during this time is his spiritual wisdom had departed from him. He began to get engulfed by trying to find pleasure and happiness just in the things of the world. So we can say his spiritual wisdom for a time left him. And you know, that, that can well happen to us as well. Our spiritual wisdom, even as believers, you know what we can do? We've been, we can become unbelieving believers, if that makes sense. Unbel- because what we've done, we've forgotten who God is. We've negated, let me say it like this, every time I sin, <clears throat> every time you sin as believers, what we have done at that moment is we have forgotten who God is. We have, we have pushed him aside. And we talk about our hearts as being idol factories. Um, the biggest idol is ourselves. So every time we sin, we can really simplify this thing. We are thinking more highly of ourselves than especially of God, but anything else. God, most importantly, we have become our own God and we have made ourselves to be our idol. That's all that sin really is. You can, you can trace it back. Any of us can think. When I sinned, what was I thinking about? I was thinking about nothing but my own pleasure and what I deserved or what I need at this time. I was considering nothing or no one else. Here's, here's Solomon. His spiritual wisdom had departed. Look what he says in verse 3. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the, under the heaven the few years of their lives. So what can I do just for these few years of my life that's going to make things enjoyable and pleasurable for me? Solomon, again, had it to the fullest. Look what he said he did in the last two verses. I enlarged my work. So what, a, what, a, what do we do when this happens? We begin to, we can see how just on such a smaller scale, we do these same things that Solomon has done. It's just on such a smaller scale than what he had. But the, the thing is that God gave us a man who had the fullest of it, and it still doesn't work. So we must not ever think that our little part of it is going to work either, no matter how, how much or how well it's going. He enlarged, he began to enlarge his work since that the other wasn't working, so he built houses for himself. Notice how he always says, I did this for myself. We're not seeing anything about Solomon desiring to do anything from the glory of God at this time. This is for myself. And this is what we do. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, everything that would be good for the eyes of uh, what do we think of uh, in the New Testament? We think of First John, uh, chapter two, the things of the world. What are what are the thing? What what's the world made of? Made up of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Perfect, perfect man for it right here. We see it. What can what can my eyes see that's going to satisfy me? What can I do that's going to satisfy the cravings of my flesh? And then he talks about all that he had being the pride of life. A perfect example. All right, if someone would read, uh, finish that up, 6 uh, through 11, is it? Did I say 11? Yeah, 6 through 11. We'll look at those.
Thank you very much. Notice the wording there that Solomon gives us. It's amazing to me. He had all these in verse 10. Look what he says. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. And notice again how he's always saying, I, I did all this for myself. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased. Notice, notice here in verse 10 he's saying that my heart was pleased because all my, of all my labor, and this was re, the reward for all my labor. So there he's saying, I'm pleased by all this. And then look at the very next verse. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and labor which I exerted. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So how can one minute he's perfectly pleased by everything that he had and that he had done, and now he's just in dilemma. He just, nothing's working. It's because these kind of worldly pleasures are fleeting. They last such a short period of time that he still could find no rest for his soul. And the reason being that God would not let him rest in that. And thanks be to God that he will not let us rest in that either. There will be that time of, a, of chasing and pulling apart and a, tearing those things away from us. He would not let Solomon be satisfied in the greatest pleasures that this earthly temporal life could ever give anybody. Again, he had, the, he had more than anybody ever will. And it did not work. It proved to be futile. Seeking happiness and pleasure in this life apart from pursuing God. That's an amazing thing. I want to read a little bit out of I've got another book here. Uh, it's a little commentary on Ecclesiastes by Charles Bridges. Another guy that goes way back but wrote a lot of great things uh, for us to continue on in and to consider. Let me see, find the page 154. Because we're going to look at couple of more verses. What time is y'all got somebody got the time? Oh, ten after. Good. Turn go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. We're just gonna kind of take a few passages here because we just don't have time to go through the whole thing. I'd love to do that sometime, but it didn't gonna work for now. Um, chapter uh, seven. Let's flip over to chapter seven. Look at verses. I'm just going to look. We're just going to look at two verses, and I'll read those. Chapter seven, verses thirteen and fourteen. Chapter seven, verse thirteen says, "Consider the work of God." Again, these are these are good things for us to do as we study the scriptures. Let's consider how God has dealt with His people through all the ages, and consider His workings, and consider them as well in our own lives. Remember what I was saying last week about. When you're, uh, when you're going through a real tough time, a good thing for us to do as believers is to look back and see God's mercies and his grace in times that we had behind us, how he brought us through, and understand that he's going to do the same thing in the present and he's going to do the same thing in the future. Because again, that's who he is. He's a merciful, kind, loving God towards his people. Look at 13. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent or what he has made crooked? And verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not discover anything that will be after him. Notice again how, how Solomon at times would come back to his senses. Because he knew. Again, this was a man, he knew who God was. He just fell into deep sin and began to live for himself and the things of the world, but he would come back. God would bring him back to places and give us a wealth of wisdom in some of the things that he says here, because this is the right thing to do. Remember I said earlier, always consider God first in all things and consider the work of God. And here's, here's the bottom line. If he's made something crooked in our lives, there's nobody going to make it straight until he himself mends it. I thought, that's what I wanted to read here out of Bridges, how he gives a good commentary 
on this uh, verse. Think of God, he gives us richly, he says. He gives us richly all things to enjoy. He means, therefore, that we should enjoy them, not wantingly or selfishly, but as opportunities of glorifying him and doing good to our fellow creatures. His rule, therefore, is that in the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day but in the day of, of uh let's see, I lost my place. In the day, day in the day of good be thou in good. When God gives prosperity, does thou enjoy it with a cheerful and thankful heart? Not to serve him with joyfulness was under the legal dispensation charged upon Israel as a heavy indictment. God was always very much displeased and angry when his people's hearts weren't thankful for what he was doing. I think I was talking about 14 there, but if we look back at 13, the works of the Lord we see are great. When we consider the work of God sought out by all those who take pleasure in him, so it's a good thing to seek these things out. His work is honorable and glorious. Such is the psalmist's uh, commendation. Who will not respond to it? Solomon here places the work of providence before us and he bids us to consider it. And truly it's a most interesting and enriching study. Whosoever is wise will observe these things, even shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So as we look back at things that God has done, that's the things that we ought to be focusing on and seeing how God was loving and how he was kind to us in those situations, what he taught us in those situations, and what he drove us away from to not do anymore. He says that difficulties will start up before us, but all is in perfect harmony. Remember that God gives his children the perfect mixture of difficulty and good. He gives us the right mixture of that. There's not a bad mixture. If it seems to be one-sided, we can know that with God it is not one-sided. It's exactly what we need at the time. And it's going to make the balance for us to enjoy the good that's coming. He makes no mistakes. Remember what we talked about, infinite in wisdom? He makes no mistakes, but he, giveth, he doesn't have to give an account of his matters. And that's where Job's dilemma was. You know, he wanted, to, he wanted God to tell him exactly why this was all happening to him. And God doesn't have to respond to his creatures that he made in such a way. He, has to, he doesn't have to give us an account. He's calling us to do nothing but just trust him and lean solely upon who he is. He, said, he says there's no need or want of conformity to his own divine standard. Yet there are many things crooked in a man's eye. This is a good statement he makes here. There are many things crooked in man's eye because they cross his own will. Understand that? See, when things don't work out for us, we think, they're a, we think they're a crooked, wrong thing that isn't supposed to be happening because it's going against our will. It's going against what we desire to do. See, we have a will, but what's more important is God has one too that we, we say is decisive. They thwart. And listen what he, how he ends this. They cross, they cross our will and they thwart our own imaginary happiness. What a statement that is, isn't it? We think if we have this or that or can do this or that, that's going to make us happy. And as Bridges is saying, that's an imaginary happiness. If God has made a crook there, it's a necessary crook to take that away from us that we won't have an imaginary happiness. We'll have a solid, sure foundation of happiness that's found in God himself. So it's a needful discipline, he says, that there should be, as it said, a crook in every lot. Man's will goes one way, God's dispensation or will goes another. In every part of his course, man must expect to meet with his crook. Especially perhaps, and well, I've seen this in my own life and some of you will identify with this, the crook will especially come in his most tender place because that's the most needed part. And hard, listen to this statement, hard is it to bear till the spirit is thoroughly tamed to bear it. Yet no power of man can make it straight. Only he that made it crooked can mend it. The solution is only going to come from God. And the straight is only going to come from him. If he's made the crook, the men won't come 
until our spirit's been tamed to do it. Because it's going to be right this time, and he's going to see to it that it is. And then when I was reading earlier, I'd skipped over to 14, and he's talking about in the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider this, God has set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. So what has God done? He's made one as well as the other. He's given, he's made prosperity, and he's also created adversity. And then he says here, this, here, Christian, is thy refuge and thy rest. We were talking about God as being that to us. Here, enjoy quiet communion, satisfied confidence. And here, learn that man's wisdom consists in observing God's unalterable appointments and suiting himself to them. Mark the wise and gracious balancing of his dispensations. Surely in providence, no less than in grace, remember from the New Testament, he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. That's Ephesians 1.8. He gives us richly all things to enjoy. And that's what I was reading a while ago, that he means therefore that we should enjoy them, not wantonly or selfishly, but as opportunities for glorifying himself. His rule therefore is this, in the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of good, be thou in good. In other words, when God gives us good, make sure we do what's right with that good and not do as we're reading about Solomon, give it opportunity to, to do more worldly things or more that's going to give us fleshly pleasures. Be good in the right way in those things. How much more constraining, Bridges says, is the obligation under the gospel when love infinitely greater and more free has been gloriously displayed in Christ, ill does it to become thus walked with the Father with a wrinkled brow, doubting and desponding. No, rather let us give him his just right in an affectionate and delighting confidence. And yet if we be joyful, we must not rejoice. Must we, must we not rejoice with trembling? Is it not a day of prosperity? Is not a day of prosperity a time of special temptation? That's what we have to be careful as too. I've seen in my own life when, when God, when things are going for a long time real good, we have a temptation to start enjoying those things too much. We think that's just the way it's going to always be. So here comes God again with that perfect mixture of adversity with prosperity to bring back the balance and cause us to remember who we are and more importantly who he is. He says, never in times of ease is prayer out of season in all time of our wealth. Good Lord, he says, deliver us. So there's our walk, our walk and the way to, way to pray and thank God for those things that he gives us, but always keeping a, keeping a, not a clenched fist for what he gives us good, but trusting him to uh, lead us in the paths of righteousness through those things and not hold on too tightly. And then look last, we'll finish here. Here's how Solomon closes. Here's where he comes back to all of his senses. Y'all are familiar with the, with the end of Ecclesiastes probably. He's looking back and here's how he sums everything that he has said up to this point up. He's given us, he's given us all that he experienced. And now look what he says in chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. In addition... To being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and he searched out and he arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads and masters. Of these collections we are, are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Notice the, how we see Christ there in Ecclesiastes. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. See, that's our, that's our primary walk and that's our primary constant reminder of, of how we're to deal 
with the things that God has done in our lives as we look back at his providence. Remember this, this is our, remember how we talked about Job? Here's what I've done. I've treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. That's our goal, to be there. Regardless of what God is doing in our lives, he gives us the warning, he gives us the commandment, and that's, our, that's, that's what we're to be about. And we'll see, we'll see his goodness in all these things, how he deals with us and how he leads us all the way. Um, I love that song, Jesus led me all the way. And we look back and we can see how that's been done. I mean, how, how we can, all of us could testify that we're, we're where we are today by just nothing from what we imagined or thought or had any, had any dealings with. Uh, we have to look back and we have to say, God led me all the way. He led me to where I am today in all these different providences and situations that we had nothing to do with. And uh, it's just amazing when we when we consider those things. Again, considering God first before all things. Well, any questions or input or testimony? No, that was just a quick flash through Ecclesiastes, but it, I think that it taught us well on how to uh, consider what God has done and who He is. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you. Father, we just thank you so much for these words, and we, we thank you for what you have written for us to learn by. Uh, you've given us strong warnings. You've given us great application. And Father, even from this little book tucked in the Old Testament, Father, we see the great uh, instruction that uh, you have given us from Solomon uh, to live a life that pursues you rather than the things of this world and how we know as believers that only true happiness true peace and comfort come from a life in, in uh, fearing you and keeping your commandments Father help us as we uh, go even through today we would consider these things and that Father as we go throughout our days and weeks that we would remember you as the first cause of all things that happen and that, Father, our total dependence upon who you are and what you do, that yet as we learn and, and study your character and your attributes, we know we know how you're going to act toward us, Father. And so help us in, in hard times and difficult days to remind ourselves of who you are and what you have done and what you will continue to do for your people. And Father, as always, we pray if there there be any that would not know you in a saving way, Father, that, that you've granted words that would come forth with power. And uh, as we read last week, that you would take a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh, a living heart, that would know and understand you. Father, for we know that that is our whole duty, as Solomon has said, to know you, to love you, to keep your commandments and to strive hard after the things of Christ. Help us to love you rightly, Lord, and to love your people. We pray these all these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.